be seated. Again, welcome. Uh, my name is Robert, the lead pastor, and I'm uh, glad you guys are here. We've been going through the book of John. So if you want to, go ahead and find the Bibles there on the floor or on your phone, because uh, I, I would encourage you greatly to look along with me, John chapter 4. Last week, we saw in John chapter 3 more what it means to have true belief. We found out what you have to believe. We found out we, we have to believe that we're sinners and in need of a Savior. We found out how we believe. We, we found out that the, the Holy Spirit actually has to make us alive and give us the, the ability to believe. We found out what the results of true belief are, which is an ever-increasing life of obedience uh, that occurs out of those that have authentically believed with saving faith. And where we found that was through an interaction that Jesus had with someone named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was uh, kind of a PhD in the Bible. He was a religious leader. He's a very moral person, a uh, very religious person. And Jesus pretty much had to convince him that he was actually a sinner and in need of, 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 sa- of a Savior and forgiveness. And so as we move from that story in chapter 3, we might be thinking, well, uh, what about someone who knows they're a sinner? What about someone who's not very religious at all? What if someone who, who, who has a lot of regrets about the past and what they've done and what has been done to them? What about those kinds of people? And I think on purpose, John places this next interaction that Jesus has with a Samaritan woman in the very next section of his gospel. There's some backstory that would be helpful in understanding this interaction that Jesus is having with this woman. Jews and Samaritans absolutely, without exception, hated each other. The, the reason in part was that the Samaritans were the result of Jewish people who had intermarried with non-Jewish people. They were considered half-breeds. And this is a big deal in the Old Testament where Israel was commanded to only marry within Israel. That was more about religious issues, because if they married outside of Israel, they would have been marrying someone who didn't worship the one true God, and God didn't want that. And so these uh, Jews had intermarried with non-Jews, and so not only had the nation of Israel been sort of corrupted, but their religious life had been corrupted. Uh, the Samaritans didn't believe in all of the Bible that the Jews believed in. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Uh, not only that, they had a version of the Torah that the Jews considered corrupted. Not only that, they also worshipped in a place other than Jerusalem. Now, they couldn't go to Jerusalem. They weren't allowed, so that was kind of hard for them to worship in Jerusalem. So they had set up another place of worship on Mount Gerizim. And so here they were, they had a racial divide, but they also had a religious divide. And the text says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, there's some debate, what exactly does that phrase mean? Was it just a geographical phrase, like he was going to point A to point B, and it just so happened that Samaritan Samaritan was in the middle? Uh, John is pretty intentional about any detail that he puts in his gospel. And so I would 
say that he's actually pointing to this reality that Jesus is intentionally going through Samaria. He's taking his disciples through Samaria on purpose, kind of like a mission trip. Like, hey guys, let's load up. Let's go to a place that's a different culture, and we're going to go do ministry in that place. It's going to be a little scary, going to be a little risky, right? And so here they go into Samaria, and it's the middle of the day. It's really hot. Jesus is tired. It says that in the text, and he's ready to just take a rest, and he, and he plops down next to this well, and he, he, I think he's not just tired. I think he's tired of the disciples, okay, because he sends all 12 of the disciples to go get a sandwich in the Samaritan village of Sakar, which would have been a stretch for them to send them into that village. Uh, I don't think it takes 12 disciples to get a sandwich, right, to get lunch. Um, and so Jesus is having some me time, right? And so he's there by the, the well. And as he's sitting there alone, up walks a Samaritan Woman. Now, there's some cultural expectations in this interaction, and the cultural expectations is that there would be no interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. He should not be talking to this woman. He certainly shouldn't be drinking out of a cup that that woman had also been drinking out of. Now, you may have experienced some similar kind of boundaries that come from different religious traditions. If you've uh, been around uh, those that practice Islam, sometimes you've experienced this. I know my daughter's track coach practices Islam, and so when any female comes up to him and tries to shake his hand, he doesn't shake their hand. He does this little bow. It's just kind of a humble, kind of gracious thing, but he will not touch a female. That is from his religion. There's a boundary there. So we got something similar going on here, except it's times a hundred, okay? So, so when you read in the, in, in the Bible some places where Jesus is talking about uh, shaking the dust off your feet, uh, he's actually talking about a Jewish practice where when a Jew would go through the Gentile village or go through a Samaritan village and they got out of the boundary of that village, they would shake off their feet, shake out their clothes to make sure there wasn't any contaminants that they might have picked up in that village. Now, we hear that and we just think, oh my goodness, how, how could people be like that? It wasn't too long ago in this country that you had water fountains for white people and water fountains for black people because the white people thought that the black people were going to contaminate them, right? So this is something that is a thread throughout history. These dividing lines, racial, religious, and in this story, even gender. So when they, when, when they encounter, when, when he encounters her, uh, he breaks the script, totally breaks the cultural script. Now take a look with me at verse 7. We'll pick it up there. It says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So here's Jesus reaching across this vast cultural divide. He doesn't just talk to her. He asked her to give him a drink, to let him drink out of the same cup or bowl that she would have been using 
for drinking water. She knows the script. And she's pretty spirited. She's strong. She's pretty courageous to talk to him like she does. But she asks him about why he's breaking the script. And Jesus is very happy to answer her questions, right? And so verse 10, he answers, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus is beginning to drop this conversation down from just talking about everyday drinking water to a spiritual conversation. And so he's, he's saying to her, I have a unique identity, and that unique identity gives me the power to bestow gifts. And one of the gifts I can bestow to people is living water. Now, what's he talking about? What is, what is this living water? Well, the term has some meaning in her everyday life. Now, living water literally is water that's moving, water that's pure, like moving water is, is more pure than water that's stagnant. It means that that water is most likely not going to cause death and disease if you drink it. That's why it's living water. This is a huge problem still in the world today, being able to get drinking water that doesn't kill you, but instead helps you to flourish in your life. There's about 783 million people that do not have access to clean water on the planet. We're talking to pushing like one-seventh of the planet. 2.5 billion don't have access to adequate sanitation, which means they don't have appropriate means of getting rid of waste, which means that waste is then contaminating their water. Six to eight million people are dying annually from water-related issues. One in five children that are under five who are dying around the world are dying because they can't get clean drinking water. They're drinking something in the very water that they're, they're consuming on a daily basis. When we, one of our Dominican projects, when we went in and we spent some time with the village of Las Malvinas and said, what do you need? What is the biggest thing that you need? Maybe we can help you with uh, some of your needs. And without a, an exception, every person we talk to, water. We need water. We need water. We need water. And so because of that, we built this massive cistern in the middle of that community so that they could hold water, so they could have fresh water on a consistent basis. Jesus is living in this kind of a developing world where drinking water is not a given. Jesus did not have a faucet to go to and turn on and get this clean water. He was having to deal with this kind of developing world challenge of whether or not water was actually going to give him life or actually going to give him disease and death. Now, Jesus is taking that image of living water and he's talking about something spiritual. He's using it to illustrate something that's invisible, right? This is what he does uh, all the time. So how does the woman understand what he's saying? Verse 11, she says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well, drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So she's either thinking literally 
or she's pushing the analogy like Nicodemus was last week. We don't know. It's kind of hard to know. Um, probably thinking literally, although she mentions Jacob, who's a spiritual hero. So she may be getting the vibe that he's talking about something spiritual, but she pushes back. Um, he is happy to have this conversation, right? He's hooked her into this dialogue. And so now he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus reveals that he's talking about something besides everyday drinking water. He's saying that this water that he gives, gives life, but not just life like you're going to make it to the next day or month, life eternal. This water is such that it's going to develop in you a spring of water that's going to well up in you to provide life, not just for this life, but for the life to come. She's interested. She's interested. She doesn't fully understand what he's saying but she's interested. And she's thinking, I wonder if this water that he can give me will be so good and and such a great source that I won't ever have to come to this stupid well ever again. Because that was a pain, having to haul water from this well every day. And here she is all by herself in the heat of the day, probably on purpose because she doesn't have the best reputation in the village. And so she's thinking, Jesus can possibly make my life easier. Now, let's not be too hard on her. Many of us come to Jesus this way, do we not? We come to Jesus and we're saying, Jesus, make my life better. Jesus, make my depression go away now. Jesus, make my anxiety go away now. Jesus, make my money troubles go away now, Jesus, give me a better job that, that's meaningful and something that I can really make a difference now, right? Uh, Jesus, could that job also make me really rich, like now? Jesus, could you get me a spouse, like now? Jesus, could you fix the spouse that I already have, like now, right? We all do this. We're trudging through life. We're saying, Jesus, could you help me out here? Could you help me with my everyday toil? And she's thinking, maybe he could give me a little helping hand for at least this part of the drudgery of my life. In this next section, it gets real. (laughs) Jesus is going to drop this conversation to a whole nother level. Look how he does this. Verse 16, he says to her, go call your husband and, and come here to come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. It got real. Really fast. 
Now, in her culture, to be in and out of five marriages, it's almost 100% sure that she has experienced abuse and abandonment. A woman could not divorce a man in their culture. A man could only divorce a woman. And so she has been abandoned multiple times. Now, she's living with a man who's not even her husband. Also, almost unheard of in her culture. What that tells us is most likely she's doing that in order to survive. That she doesn't have a family to fall back on. And so because of this, functionally, she's sort of functioning like a prostitute where she's living with this man in order to be fed and to have a roof over her head. She's in a really dark place. And Jesus is letting her know, I know your pain. I know your story. (laughs) I know where you are. And he's come to cross that divide and to reach out to her in that place. She's different than Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious insider. This woman is the outsider of a community of outsiders. She's absolutely at the end of her rope. She's tied a knot at the end of that rope. That knot is starting to unravel. And Jesus is letting her know, I know where you are. I know the pain that you're experiencing. And she has been imbibing, spiritually speaking, a water that has been making her sick. I saw a picture of this yesterday. I get done with the Meet Mercy House class. I get in the car. I drive across town. I'm crossing over Amity Street, and I see this car with its flashers on. It's pulled off on Amity Street. It's a really busy street. I'm like, that's weird. Like, why would this, this car pull off? And just basically in the middle of the street there, these flashers are going. Three students have come out of the car. One student is leaned over, and he's just hurling. It's because it's the Blarney blowout yesterday. And a lot of UMass kids... And others were, were partying. And this was 3.30 in the afternoon. And what, the reason that someone would be hurling after too much alcohol use is that they are being poisoned by alcohol. The very thing that they've been imbibing is poisoning them. We as humans, we're capable of this, both literally and spiritually, imbibing things that will make us sick. She knows what that's like. And Jesus is offering her a living water. Now, this scares her, wouldn't it you? (laughs) You meet some strange guy at a well, and he starts, like, telling you your deepest, darkest secrets. And so she pivots in the conversation. She tries to change the subject. I totally understand. I'd probably do the same thing. So watch what she does. Verse 19, woman says to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Yeah, no joke, right? Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So big, big topic shift here. We go from her sexual past, abuse, abandonment, a lot, lot there, don't know a lot of the details. We go from that to religious controversy. 
So, you Jews, you think we worship here, we think we worship there. What do you think? What's your professional opinion on that? She's also bringing up the divide, right? So here he's crossed over the divide, and she's going to build that wall back up. She's going to create that divide again. You Jews, you say this, we say this, we know we're divided here. Why don't you tell me what you think about it? And it's a pivot to keep from talking about the main thing. Some of you do that. Some of, people, some of the folks that you try to talk to the gospel, uh, talk to about the gospel do this. They do this pivot thing where, where you're kind of leaning in, you're beginning to talk about the gospel, you're beginning to talk about Jesus, the main thing, uh, the, the truth claims of, of the gospel, the, the, the central message of the Christian faith, and then all of a sudden uh, the person's like, well, let's talk about creation and evolution over here, right? And you're like, okay, that's, you know, that's an important question. We need to talk about that, but let's get back to Jesus, right? Like, if we got to answer this question, and then from that anchor, we can go out here and we can talk about this. Or you're talking about the gospel, you're kind of leaning in, talking about the central truth claims, talking about Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection. And it's like, let's talk about sexuality and ethics and what the Bible says and why Christians are, are, say what they say. And no, let's, we'll get there, but let's go back and let's talk about the central message of the gospel. Or let's talk about hell. Or let's talk about denominational differences. That's what she's doing. She's like, I don't want to talk about the central issue here. I want to talk about something out here because I don't want to deal with this. Right? And so Jesus masterfully brings her, using what her question is. <laughs> I love this. Right? Uses her very question, and he loops back to the main thing that he wants to talk about, which are the central truth claims of the gospel. Now look what he does. Verse 21, he says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. That's a stunning statement. He's saying there's this hour that's coming. He doesn't tell her what that hour is, but there's an hour coming, and that hour is going to make temple worship obsolete. And it won't matter where, worship at Jerusalem, worship at Mount Gerizim, that's not really going to be the point. Temple, priest, sacrifice, all that is obsolete. For a Jew to say that, it's blasphemous. The worship at the temple in Jerusalem is central at that point in time. And Jesus is saying something is going to happen in the near future that is actually going to make all that obsolete. And it's not going to matter where you worship. This thing's going wireless. Right? <coughs> now, verse 22, he explains himself. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour, there's that phrase again, is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So he explains this new worship, this true worship that's coming. And, he, and, and so we're going to look at it this way. We're going to look at it, what it's not, this true worship, and then what it is. So what, what it's not. It's not limited to a geographical location. 
He's saying this, this true worship that's coming, you don't have to go to a temple and have a priest and have a sacrifice. You, you don't need that to worship in the true worship that's coming. Uh, this worship is not limited to a culture. A lot of religions, they also have a culture that travels with the religion. Again, Islam is a good example of this, right? Islam has a dress code, a food code, a social code, even a language. Their understanding is that Arabic is the holy language, that God himself came up with Arabic. For a long time, the Quran was never translated into anything except Arabic because it was the holy language. There's a culture that comes with it. Judaism's similar, right? There's a dress code. There's, there's a, a, a food code. There's a social code. There's the language to some degree, like learning Hebrew, studying the scriptures in Hebrew, like that, that is very essential. There's a culture that comes with the religion. Now, Christians can do the very same thing. They shouldn't, but they do. In the 1950s, missionaries would go to another country and they would erect a little wooden church that looked like 1950s America with a steeple and a bell. And then they would uh, ask the people that they were sharing the gospel with to dress in suits and ties and come to the little church with a steeple and sing out of hymnals and oftentimes have to learn English in order to worship Jesus. They shouldn't have done that. The, the gospel does not have a culture that travels with it. Uh, to, in, in the Catholic tradition, for 1,000 years, the Catholic Church uh, taught that the Latin Vulgate was inspired by God, right? A translation, a language that traveled with the gospel. And Protestants do the same thing. Some uh, would say that the King James Version has been inspired by God, and that version is the only version you should use. And it's a culture. It's culture. It's a language that they're saying it must travel with the gospel. And the gospel, obviously, has to be heard in a language, right? We worship using a culture, right? The, the, the music style that we have or the organizational structure that we use. There's so many things that, yes, there has to be some kind of packaging. We are people of culture, but there's no one culture. The gospel can actually take residence in any culture. That's part of the beauty, of the gospel. That's part of the distinctiveness about the gospel. It, it comes into a culture and it redeems a culture and it resides in that culture. And I say redeem because all cultures have their issues, right? All cultures have problems that need to be redeemed by the gospel. There's no culture that you go in and go, yeah, we're 100% good. Like this, everything about this culture, it is perfectly aligned with the biblical, including any kind of American culture, okay? And, but then that gospel can reside in any kind of musical style or language or organizational structure. Like the, these things are sort of the, 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 the holder of it, right? The, the, the vessel in which the gospel uh, resides in. This new worship's not limited to one gender either. Notice that he's offering it to a woman. And he's saying to this woman, you can be a true worshiper. You're not a second-class citizen because you're a woman. It's not limited to so-called moral or religious people. She is definitely not moral. She's a little religious. Everyone in the ancient world was religious, but she's definitely not moral. And so he's saying, no, even you can be a part of this 
true worship. But what is this true worship? That's sort of what it's not. What is it? Let's read those two verses uh, again, 23 and 24. Hear it again. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. I emphasize those phrases and words that are uh, repetitive because this is a way for you to understand your Bible better. When you're reading through a chapter or through a paragraph and you see these repetitive, verse, uh, repetitive words or phrases, that's letting you know that the author's emphasizing something. Okay, And so he's letting us know what true worship is. So here's some of the things about true worship. The framework for true worship is a child who is worshiping their loving father. Did you catch that? The, 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 the father language is in there. This is a radical statement. No one talked this way about God. No one said that God was their father. Right? And Jesus actually, he taught his disciples to pray, Abba which is Aramaic for what we would say, daddy. This intimate relationship. He's inviting her, the Samaritan woman, into this relationship to be a child who's loved by a heavenly father and in a worshiping relationship with him. But how can he do that? With her past, with her history, how can he welcome her into an intimate relationship with God, the Father? Well, he explains, right? Spirit and truth. Let's take those one at a time. So when he says true worship is worship in spirit and truth, he's talking about the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. We talked about this last week with Nicodemus. Jesus is letting Nicodemus know you got to be born again. you got to be born by the Spirit. Like, this is a supernatural thing that has to occur in someone's life in order for you to be a true worshiper. And he's letting her know, yeah, yeah, I, I know your pain. I know this dark place you are, but I've come to get you, and, and the Holy Spirit is going to make you new. That's what this image of the living water is. When he says that this living water is going to become a well in you, welling up to eternal life, he's talking about an image that communicates the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer. The Holy Spirit is the one that gives you life. We see this in the creation account, right? We see God the Father sending God the Son to do the creating, right? He creates Adam out of the dirt. Uh, we know that it's Jesus doing that because in John 1, through him, Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then you see God breathing the breath of life into Adam, and that makes him come alive. And so in recreation, you have something similar happening. You have the Father. Father sending the Son, and the Son, we'll talk about Son here in a minute, He does what He's supposed to do, but then the Spirit is breathed back into dead souls who are sick and dying and makes them come alive. And He's saying to her, that's what can happen for you. God's Spirit can make you alive and can become in you a, a, a source of life, not just for this life, but the life to come. You talk about an IV drip that could keep her alive. It's eternal life. Now, what about this truth? What's this truth thing he's talking about? Well, the way he reveals this, 
I love this. This is one of my favorite moments in the Gospel of John. Such a clever moment. I love it. I think you just get a glimpse of, of even Jesus' personality, the way he does this. The woman says to him, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. And then John puts in parentheses, right, a little parenthetical note there, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So again, she pivots. <laughs> He's like, I, I've got this thing I'm offering. I'm offering you true worship. I'm offering you an opportunity to be a, a child of the Father, made alive again by the Holy Spirit. And she's like, well, let's wait for the Messiah. I mean, he's coming. He'll know everything. He'll clear this up. I mean, you're a prophet. You know a lot. I'm impressed. Don't get me wrong. Like that whole thing you did with the five husbands thing, like, that was amazing. But let's wait for the Messiah. And then, of course, Jesus says in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. You talk about a reveal. <laughs> That's a big reveal. And it's an important reveal in the book of John because Jesus has not forthrightly revealed himself to be the Messiah yet in the book of John. There's definitely been that communicated throughout the book, but Jesus himself has not looked somebody in the eye and said, I am the Messiah. And this is the first one that he reveals that to in the Gospel of John. I think that's on purpose because she's an unlikely candidate. There's a colossal divide between him, even just as a Jewish man, and this woman, right? But he's not just a Jewish man. He's God in the flesh. You talk about a colossal divide. And he reached across that divide, and he says, I am the Messiah. I've come to rescue you. He's here today, and he's here to rescue you. Some of you identify well with the Samaritan woman. You're at the end of your rope. You have tied a knot with all that you can muster at the end of that rope. You are hanging on that knot. That knot is beginning to unravel, and you are in a dark place. And I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus has come to rescue you. It may have taken a whole lot of courage this morning, maybe because of, of the weekend that you've had at Blarney Blowout, or maybe uh, months and months or years and years of regretful things, things that you've done, things that have been done to you. You feel absolutely far from God. And again, I'm here to say to you, He's right here. <laughs> and through God's Spirit, and this gospel that we're proclaiming this morning, he's coming near. And he's inviting you to come into a relationship with him as a true worshiper of the loving father. A relationship with God the Father through God the Son, empowered by God the Spirit. You say, well, how can I get that? How can I have that? What do you mean you're offering that? You're inviting me into that. It's a free gift. You could never do enough to earn it. And so what you do to enter into that relationship is you acknowledge your need for a Savior and you receive the forgiveness that He's provided through His death on the cross. And it is through that faith that you receive that forgiveness that's been offered to you through the cross. 
Now, for Christians, this is a good reminder to us of what true worship is. So easy for us to sort of get into a routine and a ritual and do, doing this Christian thing week in and week out. Let's hear this as a call to be true worshipers. Worshipers in spirit and truth. Gospel truth. This is why we sing gospel truth every week. This is why we preach gospel truth every week. This is why we take the bread and the cup and it proclaims gospel truth every week. Because we know when we proclaim gospel truth in those ways, the Holy Spirit says, yes, I am showing up for that. And as you behold the crucified Christ, dead, buried, resurrected, soon to return, you are being reminded of what it means to be a true worshiper. And then when you leave this place, you continue to worship in spirit and truth. You continue to behold the Christ through your own study of the Scripture, maybe in small group, maybe in your own devotional times, but you are continuing to worship in spirit and truth. We're also reminded of the nature of Christian, uh, Christian mission. We see Jesus moving across cultural barriers, religious barriers, racial barriers, even gender barriers. And why does he do it? In our context, we sort of want him to become sort of a social justice warrior in this moment and begin to work for justice for her, right? And while this isn't bad, it's not primary. What's primary for Jesus is that he's crossed this divide in order to offer her the gospel. By crossing the very divide, he's demonstrating the gospel. And as he's demonstrating it, it puts some wind in his declaration of the gospel. Because God has crossed a incredible chasm to come to us. And because as we realize that, that motivates us to then begin to cross over other divides in order to commend the gospel to others. And so it's helping us understand the nature of Christian mission. Jesus is literally enacting the gospel as he crosses over those divides to commend the gospel to her. To her. The gospel is the only hope for any kind of reconciliation between human beings. Doesn't mean we shouldn't work for it on a policy level, a governmental level, absolutely. But the, the, the only hope, really, the central hope, is that of the gospel. This reconciles us to God, and then out of that reality, we are able to have a reconciliation with each other. Yesterday at Meet Mercy House, uh, I was so encouraged. And one of the things that encourages me uh, is getting to hear all the stories. So at, at the lunch portion of the Meet Mercy House class, everyone shares their story. And I'm hearing people from all kinds of different backgrounds and countries and ethnicities. And they're all sharing how God has worked in their lives and brought them to faith in Christ. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And, and all those different kinds of people, they were there not because we said, hey, we want to be a multi-ethnic church. And so they were coming to do that and help us do that. They were doing that because of the gospel. They were there because of the gospel. And because of the gospel, there has been a fruit of multi-ethnicity. And it was incredibly powerful. 
One, one of the stories that I heard was from someone who had come from another country and was a grad student and never been in church, never really been about Christ, around Christians at all. And as she encountered different, this different group of people in her department, they, she noticed they were very kind. They were, and they were from another country, and they were just so kind to her. And no one else was really being very kind to her. And so as she experienced that, she thought, those people are kind. That's, isn't that great? They're kind people. But then she got to know them better. And then she found out they were Christians. And then she began to ask questions about their faith. And it caused her to want to lean in to the gospel. And so it, 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 it was used by God as they sort of enacted the gospel by reaching across cultural divide and then commending the gospel with both their life and their words. I, I drove away thinking about that story, and as I drove to my house and I passed my neighbor's yard, this, this sign that I've seen several times in front of his yard kind of got me thinking, and so my neighbor has this sign, maybe you've seen them, and it's like a welcome to our neighbors, all right? And it's in English and Spanish and Arabic. And hey, that's awesome, right? He's, he's welcoming anyone from different countries. It's obviously a political statement. And what I thought as I saw that, I thought, that neighbor has been very unkind to me, the guy that actually lives next door. What that tells me is that what drives his desire for any kind of a racial reconciliation or multi-ethnicity is something other than the gospel. Now, I won't speculate what that is, right? But I know it's not the gospel because the gospel drives us to reach out and reach out across any divide. And through that, we then do see reconciliation. We do see justice as we experience that, especially in the church. Now, the church is never perfect. This is always a work in progress. But I am seeing glimpses of a little taste of the reconciliation that is to come. Now, think about this. We celebrate this every time we come to this table. Jesus asked his disciples, his church, to over and over and over and over again do this ordinance whereby we take bread and we break it and we remember Jesus on the night he was betrayed, offering the bread to his disciples and then saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he takes the cup and after he blessed it, he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. It's a simple thing. And he's saying to the church, I want you to do this over and 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 over. And we do it. We do it every week, right? And it's a reminder. Keep the main thing, the main thing. The main thing is the gospel. And every week, we come around this table from all kinds of different backgrounds, different cultures, different socioeconomic levels. And we do so, why? Because of the gospel. And it's a foretaste of the feast to come. If you ever read Revelation, which is hard to read, I get it, but if you got to the end part, some of the end chapters there, what you see is a, a whole group of people who, John says, I can't even count them, there's so many of them, and they're from every tribe and every nation, every culture, right? Every language group, 
and they're all together in some kind of unity, and you look there in the middle, what is it that's unifying them? It's the gospel. It's Jesus. And they're worshiping the lamb that was slain. And it's the reconciliation that we are desiring greatly. And it is a reminder to us every time we come to this table over and over and over and over again that this, this, this gospel, this gospel has reconciled us. We've gone from being enemies of God to being children of God. But we're not just children of God. We're sons and daughters, right? But not only that, we are brothers, sisters, (laughs) because of the reconciliation of the experience with God. And so, Again, if, if you're here this morning and you're hearing this and you're saying, I want that. <laughs> I, I, I want this gospel that you're talking about. I want this forgiveness. I want this reconciliation. Again, reach out to him in faith. Open up the hand of faith in prayer this morning and receive that free gift of grace, of forgiveness. Be made his child. Right? And those of us that are in Christ, we are reminded what it means to truly worship. And so let's come around this this table, this table that reminds us of the main thing, Christ's death, his burial, his his resurrection, this gospel that we proclaim in the singing and the preaching and the breaking of the bread and the taking of the cup, a gospel that has reconciled us no matter how far we were from God. He came down in order to bring us into that reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord, I know, I know some, they, they have been imbibing anything but living water. They've gone to all kinds of places to imbibe something that they hoped would keep them alive for the next day or the next week or the next month. And Lord, I pray you would usher them right up to the living water this morning. And that through faith in you, O Christ, who died in their place so that they could be forgiven, so that those divides could be broken, and that you, your own presence, your own Holy Spirit, could come to reside and dwell in their own hearts. Lord, would you help them? Bring them to that place of knowing you in that sort of way, to be true worshipers of you. And others of us who've grown a bit apathetic because of our handling of the gospel over and over and over and have gotten into a rut of ritual and routine, God, wake us up. May the Holy Spirit that resides in each one here who's a believer, wake us up to this gift that you've given us to cross this divide that we could have never crossed ourselves in order to rescue us, to redeem us, and then commission us to do the same. And so may this be a time of encouragement, God, of correction, of restoration. May we drink deeply as we take the bread and we take the cup. Would you bless that? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.